Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our archive seminar, A Hard Look at Rent and Rent-Seeking Behavior, and was recorded in December of 2020. Our talk is hosted by our Director of Education, Ibrahim Adrame, who is joined by Dr. Michael Hudson and Mr. Pepe Escobar. Our talk today was jointly hosted by us here at the Henry George School and the International Union for Land Value Taxation. Dr. Hudson is the president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends and professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the School of Marxist Studies at Peking University in China. Mr. Escobar is a Brazilian journalist with extensive experience in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. He is the author of several books on globalization, Globalistan, Empire of Chaos, and many more. When economists try to determine what fairness looks like in the economy, they will often view this through rent or rent-seeking behavior. When most people hear rent, they think of their monthly payment to their landlord. While this is a useful comparison, when economists use the term rent, it means something a little bit different. In economics, rent is referred to as a payment or income earned more than what is required to keep a resource or factor of production in its current use. Usually, when rent-seeking occurs, there is an element of exploitation or an asymmetric balance of power present. But rent-seeking doesn't just occur between individuals or employers and employees. It can happen between countries or within systems. Rent can help explain why the U.S. economy has become so unequal and why China is developing so rapidly. Is it possible for America to reindustrialize? Has corporate power and financialization created a vicious cycle of inequality? Has China's government or financial system gained an advantage as the U.S.'s has stagnated? Our guests today hope to answer some of these questions and provide insights on how rent and rent-seeking behavior impacts macroeconomic trends. Dr. Hudson is a consultant to governments across the world for nations like Latvia, China, and Iceland. Pepe is the editor-at-large for the Asia Times and is a veteran geopolitical analyst. I can't think of two better people to host this discussion. Together, we discussed how the U.S. lost its competitive edge, how China ascended at such a rapid rate, and why an over-reliance on financialization tends to lead to inequality. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. So uh, let's formally start. Um, once we start recording, Ibrahim is going to uh, introduce the, the Henry George School and welcome everybody. Then I'm going to introduce from the bios, Michael and Pepe. And then Michael will start with rent and rent seeking. Uh, others who have comments or questions, oh. we'll put that in chat and then we'll go to the chat at some point. Okay? okay. Yeah. So, All right, so okay. Ibrahima. Uh, yes, good Pardon? morning and welcome. My name is Ibrahima Drame and I'm the Director of Education at uh, the Henry George School of Social Science. It's a great honor to have you with us today for this joint webinar co-organized with the International Union for Land Value Tax, Taxation, with two great thinkers, Professor Michael Hudson and uh, Pepe Escobar to discuss rent and rent, and rent sequel. I'd like to thank Michael and Pepe for kindly accepting to share their insights. 
And of course, uh, our good friend, uh, Alana Hartsop, co-founder of Earthride Institute, she will be moderating this session. So before I hand it over to Alana, I'd like to ask all attendees to keep their microphones muted until we open the Q&A session. In the meantime, you are free to use the chat and please do so responsibly. Alana, please go ahead and introduce our speaker. Okay, yes. Thank you so much to Michael and Pepe for joining us and having this conversation. I know that you two have admired each other's work and writings for many, many years. So this is your first time to actually actually talk together. So I'm gonna introduce you both from your bios. Uh, Michael Hudson is an American economist, professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a researcher at the Levi Economic Institute at Bard College. He's a former Wall Street analyst, political consultant, commentator, and journalist. He identifies himself as a classical economist. Michael is the author of J is for Junk Economics, Killing the Host, The Bubble and Beyond, Super Imperialism, subtitled The Economic Strategy of American Empire, Trade Development and Foreign Debt, and The Myth of Aid, among others. His books have been published, translated into Japanese, Chinese, German, Spanish, and Russian. Pepe Escobar, born in Brazil, is a correspondent editor at large at Asia Times and columnist for Consortium News, Washington, DC, and Strategic Culture, Moscow. Since the mid 1980s, he's lived and worked as a foreign correspondent in London, Paris, Milan, Los Angeles, Singapore, Bangkok. He has extensively covered Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia, China, Iran, Iraq, and the wider Middle East. Pepe is the author of Globalistan, Globalistan, how the globalized world is dissolving into liquid war. Red zone blues, a snapshot of Baghdad during the surge. He was contributing editor to the Empire and the Crescent and Tutto in Vendita in Italy. And his last two books are Empire of Chaos and 2030. Pepe is also associated with the Paris-based European Academy of Geopolitics. When not on the road, he lives between Sao Paulo, Paris, and Bangkok. So we'll have uh, Michael begin now, and he's going to describe what uh, the meaning is of rent and rent-seeking, and we'll just take it from there. Please put comments and questions in chat. Thank you. Let's go. Well, I'm honored to be here on the same show with Pepe and discuss our mutual concern. And I think you have to frame the whole issue. It, it, the China is thriving, and the West has reached the end of the whole 75-year expansion it had since 1945. So there is an illusion that America is deindustrializing because of competition from China. And the reality is there is no way that America can reindustrialize and regain its export markets uh, with its, uh, the way that it's organized today, financialized and privatized. And if China didn't exist, you'd still have the rust belt uh, uh, rusting out. You'd still have American uh, industry not being able to keep compete abroad simply because the cost structure is so high in the United States. Uh, the wealth is no longer made here by industrializing. Uh, it's made financially, mainly by making capital gains, rising prices for real estate or for stocks and for bonds. In the last uh, nine months since the uh, coronavirus came here, the top 1% of the US economy grew by $1 trillion. 
uh, it's been a windfall for the 1%. For the, the stock market is way up, the bond market is up, the real estate market is up, while the rest of the economy is going down. Uh, it, uh, despite the tariffs that uh, Trump put on uh, Chinese uh, imports, uh, trade with China is going up because we're just not producing uh, materials. America doesn't make its own shoes. It doesn't make its own nuts and bolts or fasteners. Uh, it doesn't make uh, uh, industrial things anymore because um, if a money is to make, be made off a industrial company, it's to buy and sell the company, not to uh, make loans to increase the company's production. It's uh, in New York City, where I live, uh, it used to be an industrial city. Uh, and uh, the industrial buildings, the mercantile buildings have all been gentrified into, uh, into high-priced real estate. And the result is that uh, Americans have to pay so much money on education, rent, uh, medical care, that if they got all of their uh, physical needs, their food, their, their clothing, all the goods and services for nothing, they still couldn't compete with foreign labor because of all of the costs that they have to pay that are essentially called rent seeking. Uh, the housing in the United States now absorbs about 40% of the average worker's uh, paycheck. Uh, there's a 15% taken off the top of paychecks for uh, pensions, uh, social security, and for uh, medical care, uh, Medicare. A further medical insurance adds more to the paycheck. In income taxes and sales taxes add about another 10%. Uh, then you have student loans and bank debt. So basically the American worker can only spend about one, one third uh, of his or her income on buying the goods and services they produce. All the rest goes into the, the fire sector, the finance, insurance, and real estate sector, and other monopolies. And essentially, we've become what's called a rent-seeking uh, economy, not a productive economy. So when people uh, uh, in Washington talk about uh, American capitalism versus Chinese socialism, uh, this is confusing the issue. What kind of capitalism are we talking about? Uh, America used to have industrial capitalism in the 19th century. That's how it, it uh, uh, got rich originally. Uh, but it, now it's moved away from industrial capitalism towards finance capitalism. And what that means is that uh, essentially the, the mixed economy that made uh, America rich uh, where the government would invest in education, in infrastructure, in transportation, uh, and provide these at low costs so that the employers didn't have to pay labor to afford uh, high costs. All of this has uh, been transformed over the last hundred years. Uh, and we've moved away from the whole ethic of what was industrial capitalism before. The idea of capitalism in the 19th century from Adam Smith to uh, Ricardo to John Stuart Mill to Marx was very clear. And Marx uh, stated it quite clearly. Capitalism was revolutionary. It was to get rid of the landlord class. It was to get rid of the rentier class. It was to get rid of the banking class, essentially, and just pair all the costs that were unnecessary for production. Because how did uh, England and America and Germany gain their markets? 
they gained their markets basically by uh, the government picking up a lot of the costs of the economy. The governments would, uh, in America, provided uh, low-cost education, not student debt. Uh, they provided uh, transportation at subsidized prices. They provided basic infrastructure at low, low costs. And so government uh, infrastructure was considered to be a fourth factor of production. And if you read what the business schools in the late 19th century taught, uh, like Simon Patton at the Wharton School, uh, it's very much like socialism. In fact, it's very much like what uh, China is doing. And in fact, China is following today by itself uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, pretty much the same way of getting rich that America followed. Uh, it had its government fund basic infrastructure. It provides uh, uh, low-cost education. Uh, it invests in uh, the high-speed railroads, in the airports, in the, in the building up the cities. So the government bears most of the costs. And uh, that means that employers don't have to pay workers enough to pay a student loan debt. They don't have to pay workers enough to pay enormous uh, rents, such as you have in the United States. They don't have to pay workers to save uh, for a, a pension fund uh, to pay them pensions later on. Uh, and most of all, the uh, Chinese economy doesn't really have to pay uh, a banking class because banking is the uh, most important public utility of all. Banking is uh, what uh, China has kept in the hands of government and Chinese banks don't lend for the same reasons that American banks lend. 80% of American bank loans are mortgage loans to real estate and the effect of uh, loosening uh, lo uh, loan standards and uh, increasing the, the market for real estate is push up the uh, cost of living, push up the cost of housing. So Americans have to pay more and more money for their housing, uh, either their renters or their uh, buyers, in which case the rent is for paying mortgage interest. So all of this has been, this cost structure has been built into the economy. China's been able pretty much uh, uh, to avoid all of this uh, because its objective in banking is not to make a profit and in interest, not to make capital gains and speculation. It, it creates money to fund actual means of production, to build factories, to build uh, research and development, to build uh, transportation facilities, to build infrastructure. Banks in America don't lend for that kind of thing. They only lend against collateral that's already in place uh, because they won't make a loan if it's not backed by collateral. Well, China creates money uh, through its uh, public banks uh, to create capital, to, in, to create means of production. So you have a diametric uh, opposite uh, philosophy of how to develop between the United States and China. The United States has decided not to gain wealth by actually investing in means of production and producing goods and services, but in uh, financial ways. China is gaining wealth in the old fashioned way, actually uh, producing it. And whether uh, you call this uh, industrial capitalism or state capitalism or state socialism or Marxism, uh, it basically follows uh, the same logic of real economics, the real economy, not the financial overhead. So you have China uh, operating as, as a real economy, uh, increasing its production, uh, becoming uh, the workshop of the world as England used to be called, and America 
trying to draw in foreign resources, live off uh, foreign resources, live by uh, trying to make money by investing in the Chinese stock market, or now uh, moving investment banks into China and making loans to China, uh, not by actually uh, actual industrial uh, capitalism ways. So you could say that America's gone beyond industrial capitalism, uh, and they call it the post-industrial society, but you could call it the neo-feudal society. You could call it uh, the neo-rentier society, or you could call it debt peonage, but it's not industrial capitalism. And in that sense, there's no rivalry between China and uh, America. They're different systems going their own way. And I'd better let uh, Pepe pick it up from there. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. This is, uh, this is brilliant. And you did it in less than 15 minutes. <laughs> The, you told the whole story in 15 minutes, actually. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, my, 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 my journalistic instinct is immediately to start uh, questions to Michael. So this is exactly what I'm going to do now. Um, I, I think much better than basically uh, illustrating some points of what Michael just said, comparing the American system. Uh, which is finance capitalism, essentially, with industrial capitalism that it's in effect in China. Uh, let me try to start with a, with a very uh, concrete and straight to the point question, Michael. Uh, let's say that more or less uh, uh, the Chinese way, if we want to put it, if we want to summarize it, uh, basically uh, they try to tax non-productive uh, rentier class. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so, so this would be the Chinese way to create wealth uh, redistribution, right? Uh, there is a, a, a sifting through the Chinese uh, economic literature. Uh, there is a, a very interesting concept, which is relatively new. Correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, in China, which they call stable investment. So stable investment according to the Chinese, would be issuing special bonds uh, as uh, extra capital, in fact, for, to be, uh, to be uh, invested in infrastructure building all across China. And, and they uh, choose these projects in uh, what they call weak areas and weak links. So probably in some of the inner provinces or probably in some parts of Tibet and Xinjiang, for instance. Uh, so, 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 so this is a, a way to invest in the real economy and in real government investment projects, right? So my question, in fact, is, does the system create local extra debt or extra local debt? coming directly from this uh, fi financing from Beijing. And is this a good recipe for sustainable development, the Chinese way, and a recipe that they could expand to other parts of the global south? Well, this is a big problem that uh, they're discussing uh, right now. The localities, especially uh, rural China, and China is still very largely rural. Uh, the localities uh, only cover about half of their uh, working budget from, uh, from taxation. So they have a problem. How are they going to get the balance of the money? 
Well, there's no uh, official revenue sharing between the federal uh, government and its uh, state banks uh, and the localities. Uh, so the localities can't simply go to China and say, give us uh, more money for the localities. The government uh, has left the localities very independent uh, of them. And it's sort of the let a hundred flowers bloom. And so they've let each localities go the long way. But the localities have run a big deficit. What do they do? Well, in the United States, uh, they would issue uh, bonds uh, on which New York is about to default. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but in China, uh, the easiest way for the localities to make money uh, is, uh, unfortunately, they will uh, do something like Chicago did. Uh, they will sell their tax rights for the next 75 years for current money now. So uh, they will, a real estate developer uh, will come in and say, well, look, it, we, will, we will give you the next 75 years of tax on this land because uh, we want to build a uh, 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 project on this a set of buildings. So what this means is that now the cities have given away uh, their source of rent. Are we still on? Uh, apparently yes. we're on. Yeah. Let, me, let me show you. The problem is what uh, Indiana and uh, Chicago did. Chicago uh, also was uh, very much like China's countryside cities. It wow. sold its uh, uh, parking meters and its sidewalks to uh, a whole series of Wall Street investors, including the Abu Dubai uh, Investment Fund for 75 years. And uh, that meant that for 75 years, this, uh, uh, the Wall Street consortium uh, got to uh, control the parking meters. So they put up the parking meters all over Chicago, raised uh, the price of parking, raised the cost of driving to Chicago. Uh, and uh, it, uh, if Chicago would have a parade, and uh, interrupt parking, then Chicago has to pay uh, the Abu Dhabi and Wall Street company what it would have made anyway. And this became such an awful disaster that uh, uh, finally Wall Street had to reverse the deal and undo it because it was uh, giving privatization a bad name uh, here. The same thing happened in Indiana. Indiana was running a deficit and it uh, decided to sell its road uh, to a Wall Street investment firm to make a toll road. The toll road on the Indiana Turnpike was so high that uh, drivers began to take all of the side roads. That's the problem if you sell future tax revenues in advance. Now, uh, what China and what the local uh, localities there uh, are discussing is how do we now that we've already uh, uh, given the uh, real estate tax at very, very low uh, estimates to uh, the commercial developers, what do we do? Well, uh, what I've advised them to do, uh, Alana didn't say, but uh, I've been a, I'm a professor of, uh, of economics at the uh, Peking University School of Marxist Studies. Uh, and we, I've had discussions with the Central Committee and for, uh, I also have an official position in Wuhan uh, at uh -huh. the universities there. Uh, we're discussing, how China can put uh, a added tax for all of the value of the land that's gone up, how can it begin to let the cities collect this tax? It's sort of like as if the, uh, our, our claim is that the cities in selling these tax rights for 75 years have sold what in uh, Britain would be called ground rent, what's paid ground to the landed aristocracy. Uh, and over and above that, there's the market rent. So China should pass a market rent tax 
over and above uh, the ground rent tax to reflect uh, uh, the current uh, value. And they're, they're thinking of, well, do we say that this is a capital gain in the land? Well, it's not really a capital gain until you sell the land, but it's a value, uh, it's a valuation of the capital. And they're looking to do whether they should just say, this is the market rent tax over and above uh, the flat uh, tax that has been paid in advance, uh, or it, it's the, uh, the a land tax on the capital gain for land. Now, all of this requires that there be a uh, a land map made of uh, the whole country, and uh, they are just beginning to create such a land map as a basis for how do you calculate how much the rent is. Uh, and there's really, a, what I found in China is something very strange. Uh, uh, it's the first, uh, a few years ago in Beijing, they had the first uh, uh, international Marxist conference uh, where I was the main speaker and I was talking about Marx discussion. Uh, the main discussion of the history of rent theory is in volume two and volume three of Capital, uh, where Marx discusses all of the classical economics that led up to his view, Adam Smith, Ricardo, Malthus, John Stuart Mill. Uh, and uh, Marx's theories of surplus value is really the first history of economic thought uh, that was written, although it wasn't published until after he died. Well, uh, you could see that there was a little bit of uh, discomfort in uh, some of the uh, Marxists uh, at the conference. And so they invited uh, for the next time, my colleague, uh, David Harvey, to come and talk about uh, uh, Marxism in the West. Well, David gave both the leading and the uh, uh, the closing speech of the conference and said, uh, you've got to go beyond volume one of Capital. Volume one was what Marx wrote as his addition to uh, uh, classical economics, saying that uh, there was exploitation in industrial employment of labor as well as rent seeking. And that then he said, now that I've done my uh, introduction here. Let me talk about how finance, how capitalism works in volume two and three. And volume two and three are all about rent and finance. And uh, David Harvey uh, has published uh, a whole uh, book on volume three of Capital. And his message to Peking University and the second Marxist conference was, you've got to read volume two and three. Well, you can see that uh, uh, there's a discussion now over what is Marxism. And uh, my friend uh, and uh, colleague at PKU, uh, Sasha Buzgalin said, Marxism is a Chinese word. It's the, the Chinese word for politics. That made everything clear to me. Now I get it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm working now with, uh, I've been asked by the Academy of Social Science uh, in China to uh, create a syllabus of uh, the history of uh, rent theory uh, and value theory. And essentially in order to have an idea of how do you calculate rent? How do you make uh, uh, a national income uh, analysis where you show rent? You have to have a theory of value and price. And rent is, uh, rent is the excess of price over the actual cost value. Well, for that you need a concept of cost of production, and that's what classical economics is all about. That's what, and post-classical economics denied all of this. Uh, the whole idea of classical economics is not all income is earned. Landlords don't earn their income for making rent in their sleep. 
as John Stuart Mill said. Uh, banks don't earn their income by letting debts just sitting there and letting debts accrue interest and compounding and uh, uh, doubling. So uh, the classical economists separated actual uh, unearned income from the production and consumption economy. Well, uh, around uh, the late 19th century uh, in America, you had uh, uh, economists fighting against not only uh, Marx, but also even against uh, Henry George, uh, who at that time was uh, urging uh, land tax in New York. And so at Columbia University, uh, John Bates Clark uh, developed a whole theory that everybody earns whatever they, uh, they can get. Uh, there is no such thing as unearned income, and that's become the basis for American uh, uh, national income statistics and thought ever since. So if you look at today's uh, GDP, gross, national, gross domestic product figures for the United States, uh, they have a figure for 8% uh, of the GDP is for the homeowner's rent, what homeowners would pay themselves if they had to rent the apartment to themselves. Uh, you have interest uh, at about 12% of uh, GDP, uh, but and I, I thought, well, how can interest be so steady? What happens to all of the late fees at 29% uh, uh, that uh, credit card companies charge? Uh, the And I called uh, the national income people in Washington uh, when I'm there, and they said, well, late fees and penalties are considered financial services. And so this is what you call a service economy. Well, there's no service in charging a late fee, but they add all of the late fees. Uh, when people can't pay their debts and they owe more and more, all of that's considered a, in addition to GDP. When housing becomes more expensive and prices American labor out of the market, that's called an increase in GDP. Uh, this is not how uh, a country that wants to develop is going to create its uh, national income accounts. So there's a long discussion in China about just to answer your question, how do you how do you create an account to distinguish between what's a necessary cost of production and what's an unnecessary production cost, and how do we avoid doing what the United States did? So uh, that again, no rivalry. The United States is an object lesson for China in what to avoid, not only in deindustrializing the economy, but in creating a picture of the economy as if everybody earns everything and there's no exploitation. There's no unearned income. Nobody makes money in their sleep and uh, the one there's no 1%. Well, that's, that's what's really at issue and why the whole world is splitting apart is you and I discussing what we're writing. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. So to, to sum it all up, can we say that uh, the Beijing strategy to, to save especially provincial areas from leasing their land, their infrastructure for 60 years or 75 years, as you just mentioned. Can, can we say that their national, the, the, the fulcrum of their national strategy is what you define as the market rent tax? Is this the number one mechanism that they, they are developing? They, the, ideally, they want to keep rents as low as possible because rents are a cost of living and a cost of doing business. Uh, they don't have banks that are uh, lending uh, to, to inflate the real estate market. However, uh, in almost every Western country, uh, the value of stocks and the value of uh, real uh, stocks and bonds and the value of real estate is just about exactly the same for the US, Germany, 
England. But for China, the value of real estate is way, way larger than uh, the value of uh, stocks uh, of uh, of stocks. And the the reason is not so not because uh, the Chinese uh, central bank uh, and the Bank of China lend uh, for real estate. It's because they lend to uh, intermediaries, and the intermediaries have financed a lot of housing purchases in China. And uh, this is really the problem. Uh, if they uh, levy a land tax, then you're going to make a lot of these financial intermediaries go bust. Uh, I don't, that's what I'm advocating. I don't think that's a bad thing. These financial mediaries shouldn't exist. And this same issue came up in 2009 in the United States. You had one, uh, you had the leading American bank being the most crooked uh, internally uh, uh, false uh, bank in the country, Citibank, making junk mortgages. And it was broke. Its entire uh, net worth was wiped out as a result of its uh, uh, fraudulent junk mortgages. Well, Sheena Baer, uh, the head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, wanted to close it down uh, and uh, take it over. And essentially, that would have made it into a public bank. And uh, uh, that would be a wonderful thing. She said, look, uh, it, Citibank shouldn't be doing what it's doing. It's, and she wrote all this up in uh, the book, that her uh, autobiography about it. And uh, she was overruled by uh, President Obama and uh, uh, Tim Geithner saying, but wait a minute, those are our campaign contributors. Uh, that are, that's who are, are, we're loyal to, the campaign contributors, not, uh, uh, not uh, our, uh, our voters. And uh, they didn't close uh, Citibank down. And the result is that the whole Federal Reserve ended up creating uh, uh, trillions of uh, about seven trillion dollars of uh, quantitative easing to bail out the banks. The homeowners weren't weren't bailed out. Ten million American families lost their homes as a result of junk mortgages uh, in an excess of what the property was actually worth. All of this uh, uh, was left on the books, foreclosed, sold to. Uh, private capital companies like uh, Blackstone. And the result is that home ownership in America declined from 68% of the population down to about 61%. Well, uh, right where the Obama administration left off, you're about to have the uh, Biden administration uh, begin in January with uh, an estimated 5 million Americans losing their homes. Uh, they're going to be evicted because they've been unemployed during the pandemic. Uh, they have not been, they've been working in restaurants or gyms or uh, other uh, indus uh, industries that have been shut down because of the pandemic. They're going to be evicted and many homeowners, have, uh, low income homeowners have been unable to pay the mortgages. There's going to be a wave of foreclosures uh, there. Uh, the question is who's going to bear the, uh, uh, the cost. Should it be 15 million American families lose their homes just so the banks won't lose the money? Or yeah. should you le let the banks that have met all of the growth since 2008 has been by the 1% or by the 5% of the population. 95% of American GDP of the population has uh, seen its uh, wealth go down. Uh, all the wealth has been accumulating for the 5% uh, in statistics. Now the question is, should this 
5% that's got all the wealth lose or should the 95% lose? The, the uh, Biden administration says the 95% should lose, basically, and uh, uh, you're going to see a wave of foreclosure. That, the question is in China, uh, should these uh, intermediate banks that are uh, uh, near banks, they're not really banks, they're sort of like payday loan lenders, should they uh, uh, come in and uh, uh, bear the loss or should uh, uh, Chinese localities and the people bear the loss? Somebody has to lose uh, when you're, uh, you're charging, you're collecting the land's rent that was paid uh, to the creditors. And uh, either the creditors have to lose or uh, the tax collector loses. And that's the conflict that exists in every society of the world today. And in the West, the idea is the tax collector should lose uh, and whatever the tax collector relinquishes should be free for the banks to uh, collect. Uh, in China, uh, obviously, they don't want that to happen and they don't want to see a financial class developing along US lines. Mm -hmm. Michael, there's a, there's, a, there's a quick question in all this, which is uh, the official uh, position by Beijing in terms of helping the localities. Their official position is that there won't be any bailouts of local debt. How do they plan to do that? <laughs> That's <laughs> what they're discussing. How are you not going to do it? Uh, they think uh, they've sort of let uh, localities go their own way. And uh, they think, well, you know, which ones are going to succeed and which ones aren't. They didn't want to have a one-size-fits-all central planning. They wanted to have flexibility. Well, now they have flexibility. And when you have many different, let 100 flowers bloom, not all the flowers are going to bloom at the same rate. Uh, and the question is, uh, if they don't bail out the cities, how are the, the cities going to operate. Certainly, yeah. China has never let markets steer the economy. The economy, uh, the government steers the markets. That's what socialism is, as opposed to finance capitalism. So uh, the question is, you can let, uh, you, you, you can let uh, localities go broke, and yet you're not going to des destroy any of the physical uh, assets of the localities. All of this is going to be in place. The question is, how are you going to uh, arrange the flow of income to uh, all of these uh, roads and buildings and land uh, that's in place? How do you uh, create a system? And uh, they're work essentially they're saying, well, if we're industrial engineers, how do we just plan things? Forget credit, forget the uh, uh, property claims forget the rentier claims. How are we just going to design an economy that operates most efficiently? And that's what they're working at now uh, to resolve this uh, situation because it's got uh, fairly critical, especially in the countryside. Especially in the countryside, no? exactly. <laughs> well, I think uh, uh, a very good metaphor in terms of uh, comparing both systems is investment in infrastructure. Now, uh, you, you, you travel to China a lot. So you've seen, uh, you travel through a high-speed rail, you've seen those fantastic airports in Pudong or the new airport in Beijing. And then you take the Acela to go from Washington and New York City, <laughs> which is something that I used to do years ago. And the comparison is striking, isn't it? 
Or uh, if you go to France, for instance, when, when France started developing with the TGV, the TGV in, in terms of a national uh, infrastructure uh, network is one of the best networks on the planet. And the French start doing this 30 years ago, even more. Uh, is there, uh, it's, not, it's, it's not in terms of way out, but uh, if we analyze the minutiae, it's obvious that following the American financialization system, we could never have something remotely similar happening in the United States in terms of building infrastructure, right? So, so do you see any realistic uh, <laughs> bypass mechanism to, in terms of improving American infrastructure, especially in the big cities? No, and there are two reasons uh, for uh, that. Uh, number one, uh, let's, let's take a look at the long-term railroads. Uh, the railroads uh, go through uh, the center of town or even in the countryside, all along the railroads, the railroads brought business and all the businesses have been located as close to the railroad tracks as you can. Factories uh, with uh, uh, sidings off the railroad, uh, hotels, and especially right through the middle of town where you have the railway gates going up and down. In order to make a high-speed rail, uh, as in uh, China, you need a dedicated roadway uh, without uh, trucks and cars. Imagine a car going through a railway gate and <laughs> at 350 miles an hour. So uh, uh, when I uh, when I would go from Beijing to Tianjin, uh, here's the uh, high speed rail. There's one highway on one side, one highway on the other side. Uh, there will be underpasses, uh, uh, but there's uh, it goes straight now. How can you, suppose you would have a straight uh, Acela line from uh, Washington uh, up to Boston? How uh -huh. all along the line, there's all this real estate right along the line have been built up. Uh, you, there's no way you can get a dedicated roadway without having to tear down all of this uh, real estate uh, that's on either side. And the cost would be of making the current owner's whole is prohibitive. Prohibitive, and anywhere you would go that's not in the central of, uh, of the city, you you would also have to have the problem of there's already private property there, and that's uh, uh, there's there's no legal constitutional way for such a physical investment to be made. China was able to make this investment because it was still largely rural. Uh, it wasn't as built up along the railways. Um, it, it, it didn't have any particular area that was built up right where the railroad already was. So certainly any high-speed uh, rail could not go where the current railways uh, would be and they'd have to go on somebody's land. Uh, and they're all, there's also, uh, what do you do, like if you want to get to New York and Long Island from, uh, it's, it, we're an island here. Uh, off from New Jersey. Uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when I went into Wall Street, the cost of getting, uh, of transporting a good from California to uh, Newark, New Jersey, was as, uh, as large as from Newark right across the Hudson River to uh, New York, because of, uh, not only because of the mafia and control of the uh, local labor unions, but because, because of the tunnels. Right now, the tunnels from New Jersey to New York are, are, are broke, uh, uh, are, are leaking, they're broke. Uh, the subways in New York City, uh, where I am, continually break down because there was a hurricane uh, a few years ago and the, the switches were made in the 1940s. The switches are 80 years old, they had water damage 
and the trains have to go at a crawl. Uh, but the, uh, the city and state, because it has not collected uh, real estate tax and uh, other tax uh, taxes, and because uh, ridership fell on uh, the, the uh, subways to about uh, 20%, uh, the city's broke. They're talking about 70% of city services being cut back. They're talking about cutting back the subways to 40% 40, 40 uh, capacity, meaning everybody will have to get in and uh, when there's still a virus and hardly, not many people are wearing masks and there's no means of enforcing masks here. So it's, uh, it, uh, there's no way that you can uh, rebuild uh, the infrastructure because uh, uh, the, for one thing, the, the banking uh, system here has, has subsidized for a hundred years junk economics, saying you have to balance the budget. If you, if the government creates credit, it's inflationary. As if when, when banks create credit, it's not inflationary. Well, the monetary effect is the same, uh, no matter who creates the money. And so uh, Biden has already said uh, that President Trump ran a big deficit. We're going to run a budget, a budget balance. And he was uh, advocating that all along. We're going, uh, Essentially, Biden's saying we have to increase unemployment by 20%, lower wages by 20%, and shrink the economy by about 10% in order to in order for uh, the banks not to have money. And uh, we're going to privatize, like, uh, but we're going to privatize by selling uh, the uh, the hospitals, the schools, the parks, the transportation to finance to Wall Street finance capital groups. And so you can imagine what's going to happen if the Wall Street groups buy the infrastructure. They'll do what uh, happened to Chicago when it sold at parking meters. They'll say, okay, instead of 25 cents an hour, let's charge you $3 an hour. Instead of uh, $2 for the subway, let's make $8 for the subway. Uh, you're going to have, you're going to price American economy even further out of the business because they say uh, that public investment is socialism. Well, it's not socialism. It's it's industrial capitalism. It's, yep. it's basic industrialization. It's uh, it's basic economics. It's uh, uh, and yet the the uh, the uh, idea of uh, what how an economy works is so twisted academically that it it's uh, the actual it's the antithesis of uh, what uh, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Marx all talked about. For them. A free market economy was an economy free of rentiers, free of rent. It didn't have any rent seeking. For now, for the Americans, a free market economy is free for the rentiers, free for the landlords, free for the banks uh, 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 to make a killing. And uh, uh, that is basically the class war uh, is uh, back in business with a vengeance yeah. uh, over, over here. And uh, that blocks, uh, th th that is preventing any kind of uh, uh, infrastructure uh, recovery. I don't see how it can possibly uh, take place. Well, what, what you just described is a process of turning the United States into a giant Brazil, in fact. This, this is what uh, uh, the Brazilian uh, finance ministry, Paulo Guedes, a, a pinochetista, as you, as you know, Michael, yeah. is doing with the Brazilian economy for the past few years privatizing everything and selling everything to big Brazilian interests and with lots of Wall Street interests involved as well. That's right. And, uh, so, so, so this is a, a recipe that goes 
uh, all across the global south as well. And it's fully copied all across the global south with no way out. No? Yes, this, and th this is promoted by uh, the uh, World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And uh, when uh, I was brought down to Brazil to meet with the uh, Council of Economic Advisors under Lula, they said, well, the whole problem is that Lula has been obliged to let the banks do the planning. Uh, yeah. So uh, basically, free markets and libertarianism is a doctrine of central planning, but it's central planning by the banks. America is a much more centrally planned economy than China. China is letting 100 flowers bloom. America's concentrated uh, the planning and the resource allocation in Wall Street. And that's a central planning that is much more corrosive than any government planning uh, could be. Now, the irony is that China is sending its students to America to study economics. And uh, uh, most of the, uh, the, the Chinese I talked to say, well, we went to America to take economics courses because that gives us a, a prestige uh, here in China. And so uh, I'm working now uh, with uh, Chinese groups trying to develop a uh, reality economics to be taught in China uh, is different from the uh, uh, American economics. Exactly, because what they study at Beijing University, Renmin or Tsinghua, is not exactly what they would study in the big American universities, right? Uh, they, probably what they study in the U.S. is not to do in China, when they come back to China, what they won't be doing in China. Yes, it's an object lesson for what to avoid. It's an object lesson. <laughs> yes. Michael, uh, in terms of... Uh, I'd like to go back to what the BRICS had been discussing since the, the 2000s when Lula was still uh, in, uh, as president of Brazil and uh, many of his ideas deeply impressed, especially Hu Jintao at the time, which is bypassing the US dollar. At the moment, obviously, we're still at uh, what? The US dollar is what? 80 something, 87% of international transactions still. So we are very far away from it. But uh, if you have a truly sovereign economy, which is the case of China, which we can say is the case of Russia to a certain extent, and uh, obviously in a completely different uh, framework, Iran. Iran is a completely sovereign, independent economy from the West. The only way to try to develop different mechanisms to not to fall into the rentier mind space would be to bypass the US dollar. Yes, uh, for many reasons. Uh, for one thing, uh, the United States can use, uh, the United States can simply print the dollars and lend to other countries and then say, now you have to pay us interest. Well, they don't, uh, Russia doesn't need uh, American dollars. It can print its own rubles. Uh, to provide uh, do its labor. There's no need uh, uh, for a foreign currency at all for domestic spending. The only reason you would have to borrow a foreign currency is to balance your exchange rate uh, uh, or, or uh, to, to finance a uh, trade deficit. Uh, but China doesn't have a trade deficit. And in fact, yeah. if China were to, were to accept more dollars, if Americans would love to buy into the Chinese market uh, and uh, make a profit there, but that would push up China's exchange rate and uh, that would make it more difficult for it to make its exports because the exchange rate would come up not because it's exporting more, uh, and, but because it's uh, letting American dollars come in and push it up. 
Well, fortunately, Amer uh, President Trump, it's as if he, uh, he works for the uh, Chinese National uh, Committee. He said, look, we don't want to really hurt uh, China by pushing up its currency. We want to keep it competitive. Uh, so I'm going to make, I'm going to prevent American companies from lending money uh, to China. I'm going to, I'm going to isolate it. Uh, we have, uh, and so he's, he's helping them uh, protect their economy. And in Russia, he said, look, we're, uh, Russia really needs to feed itself. And, uh, there's a, a real danger that when the Democrats come in, uh, there are a lot of anti-Russians in the Biden administration. They may go to war. They may go to do to Russia what they tried to do to China in the 50s, stop exporting food and grain uh, when only uh, Canada was able to break the embargo. So uh, we're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to impose sanctions on Russia. So uh, Russia immediately, what has happened? Russia very quickly became the largest grain exporter in the world. It, instead of importing cheese uh, from the Baltics, it created its own cheese industry. They make their own cheese, yeah, yeah. So uh, Trump said, look, I know that Russians uh, followed the American idea of not have protective tariffs. They need protective tariffs. They're not doing it. We're going to help them out by uh, just not uh, importing uh, to them. And uh, so he's uh, really helping them uh, and, and China become, he's feeding the parting guest. Yeah. Uh Michael, what do you think BlackRock wants from the Chinese? You know that they are making a few inroads at the highest levels, of course. I'm sure you're aware of that. And also JP Morgan, Citibank, etc. What do they really want? Uh, they'd like to be able to create dollars to uh, begin to buy, uh, uh, make loans to real estate uh, and, the, and the companies, let the companies uh, grow and uh, uh, let the real estate market grow and uh, make capital gains. Uh, the, the, the economy, pe the way people get wealthy today isn't by making an income. It's by making a capital gain. Uh, total returns are uh, uh, current income plus the capital gains. And the capital gains each year, the land value gains uh, alone are larger than the whole GDP growth uh, from year to year. So that's where the money is. That's where the wealth is. So they're after cap speculative capital gains. They would like to push money into the Chinese stock market and real estate market, see the prices go out, and then inflate the prices uh, by buying in, and then sell out at a high price, pull the money out, get a capital gain, and let the economy fall, you know, crash. I mean, that's the business plan. Exactly. But but this would uh, Beijing would never allow that. Well, here's the problem right now. They know that uh, Biden is uh, uh, pushing uh, a militarily aggressive people in its uh, cabinet. Uh, China does. There's one kind of overhead that China is really trying to avoid, and that's the military overhead. Uh, yeah. Because if you spend money on military, you can't spend it on the real economy. They're very worried about the military, and they say, "How do we? How do we defer deter the uh, Biden administration from uh, actually?" trying to uh, do a military adventure in the China Sea uh, or elsewhere. They said, well, fortunately, America's multi-layered. They don't think of America as a group. They, they realize there's a layer and they say, who's going to represent our interests? Well, Blackstone and Wall Street are going to represent their interests. And I think uh, one of the uh, Ch uh, Chinese officials last week gave a big speech on this very thing saying, look, uh, our best hope in stopping uh, America's military adventurism as China is to have Wall Street uh, uh, acting as our support because after all, Wall Street 
is the main campaign contributor, and uh, the president works for the campaign contributors. The politicians okay. work for the campaign contributors. They're in it for the money. So uh, fortunately, uh, we have Wall Street on our side. We've got uh, uh, control of the political system, and they're not going to go to war. Uh, so that helps explain why uh, a month ago they let uh, wholly owned uh, U.S. banks and exactly. uh, banking firms yeah. and uh, uh -huh. investment bankers in. Uh, on the one hand, they don't like the idea of uh, somebody outside the government creating credit for completely different, for reasons that the economy doesn't need. If the economy yeah. needed it, the Bank of China would. Uh, and The so Bank of China, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They have no need for Amer foreign currency to come in to make loans and domestic currency out of China. Uh, the only reason that they could do it is, number one, uh, uh, it uh, helps uh, meet the World Trade Organization principles. And number two, uh, it, it helps for the time being, especially during this formative few months of the Biden administration, helps uh, Wall Street saying, we can make a fortune in China, go easy on them, don't it? And uh, essentially counter the, uh, uh, the military hawks in uh, Washington. Uh huh. That's my view. So, uh, so do you foresee a scenario when, for instance, BlackRock start wreaking havoc in the Shanghai Stock Exchange, for instance? It would love to do that. Uh, it would love uh, to put things up and down. The money's made uh, by companies like uh, with the zigzags. So, of course, it wants to do uh, uh, predatory uh, zigzags. Uh huh. Uh, the question is whether uh, China will impose. Uh, a transaction stop to stop uh, uh, tax to stop this uh, all sorts of uh, financial uh, uh, taxes to stop it. That's what's under discussion now. Uh, they know exactly what BlackRock wants to do because they have some very uh, savvy uh, billionaire uh, Chinese advisors who are, are uh, quite uh, telling. I, I, I could tell you stories, but I better not. I know. Okay, if it's not okay, tell tell us part of the story then. <laughs> uh, the the um, uh, American banks have been cultivating uh, leading Chinese people by providing them enough money to make money here uh, that they think that okay they will now uh, try to make money in the same way in China, and we can join in. It's a it's a conflict of, of systems again, a yes. conflict between uh, the. Uh, finance capital system and industrial socialism. That and uh, you know in Washington uh, you, you don't get any of this discussion in the U.S. press, which is why I read what you write because in the U.S. press there's the uh, the neocons talk about uh, this sort of fake. They have a fake idea of, of Greek history and a fake Thucydides mm -hmm. and this idea fake, of yeah. uh, uh, the Thucydides problem of a country jealous of another country's development. There's no jealousy between America and China. They're saying they're different. They're their own way. We want to destroy them. And if you look at uh, the analogies that the Americans draw, and this is how the Pentagon uh, thinks, uh, uh, with the uh, the the uh, war between Athens and Sparta, uh, yeah. it's hard to tell which is which. Here you have Athens, a democracy backing other democracies and having the military support of the democracies. And the military, uh, these uh, democracies all had to pay Athens uh, protection money for the military support. And that it was the money that Athens got 
for its ostensibly to support its navy and protection that built up all of the Athenian public uh, public buildings and everything else. So you had a democracy exploiting its allies uh, uh, to en enrich itself for military. Then you had Sparta, which was funding all of the oligarchies, uh, and it was helping the oligarchies overthrow democracies. Well, that was America too. So America is both sides of the Thucydides War. It's the democracy exploiting the fellow democracies, and it's the supporter of oligarchies in Brazil, Latin America, yeah. Africa and everyone else. So uh, you could say the uh, Thucydides problem is between two, uh, uh, two aspects of America it has nothing to do with China at all, uh, uh, except for the fact that the whole war was a war between economic systems. Uh, and uh, that's what they're acting as if somehow, if only China, if only China did not export to us, we could be reindustrialized and somehow export to Europe and the third world. And, as you and I have described, it's over. It, we're, yeah. uh, we've painted ourselves into such a debt corner that without writing down the debts, we're in the same position that the Eurozone is in. They, th there's so much money that goes to the creditors, to the top 1% or 5%, that there's no money for capital investment, there's no money for growth. And uh, it, really since 1980, as you know, wages in America have been stable all the growth has been in property owners and creditors and the fire sector. The, re the rest of the economy is in stagnation. And now with the, the coronavirus has simply acted as a catalyst to uh, make it very clear that, okay, the game's, uh, it's time to move away from a homeowner economy to a rentier economy, a rent economy. Time for Blackstone to be the landlord. Try, try to, there, America wants to recreate the British landlord class and the essentially what we're seeing now is like the Norman invasion of England, taking over the land uh, and the infrastructure. That's what Blackstone would love to do in China. Wow, uh, I'm, I'm afraid they may have a lot of leeway by, by, some, by some members of the Beijing leadership now, because as you know very well, it's not a consensus in the Politburo. No? That's why we're talking about volume two and three of capital. Not volume three. two and three in capital, exactly. But you know, uh, in terms, you were talking about that. Uh, c coming back to that, in fact, uh, I just checked this morning. Apparently, global debt, as it stands, it's two hundred and seventy-seven trillion dollars global debt, which is something like 365% of global GDP. What, 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 what does that mean in practice, Michael? There, well, fortunately, there was a, uh, this is discussed in the 19th century, and there was a word for that, fictitious capital. Fictitious uh, capital. Capital is a debt that can't be paid, but you keep it on the books anyway. Uh, and every country has this. You could say uh, the question now of the uh, Financial Times just had an article a few days ago on uh, is China's claim on uh, third world countries uh, on the Belt and Road Initiative uh, fictitious capital because how can it uh, collect? Well, China's already thought of that. It, it, it doesn't want uh, money. It wants the raw materials. It wants to be paid yeah. in real, real. But uh, must it, much of the a debt that can't be paid uh, can only be paid either by foreclosing foreclosing on uh, 
the debtors or by writing down the debts. And obviously a debt that can't be paid won't be paid. And so uh, you had not only Marx using the word fictitious capital, at the other end of the spectrum, you had Henry George talking about fictive capital. In other words, these are property claims that have, no, uh, there's no real capital behind them. There's no capital that makes profit. It's just a, a property claim for payment, a rentier claim uh, uh, for payment. So uh, this uh, the question is, can you make money somehow without having any production at all, without having wages, without having profits, without having capital, can you just have asset grabbing and buying and selling assets? Uh, and as long as you have the Federal Reserve in America come in, uh, uh, Trump just gave uh, uh, Trump's ten trillion dollars COVID uh, program gave two trillion to uh, the population at large with these twelve hundred dollar checks uh, that my wife and I got, and eight trillion all just to buy stocks and bonds. None of this eight exactly. trillion was to build infrastructure. None of this eight trillion was to build a single factory. None of this eight trillion was to employ a single worker. It was all just to support the uh, prices of stocks and bonds and to keep the illusion that the economy had not uh, stopped growing. Well, it's growing for the, uh, uh, for the 5%. Five per, five uh, so it's all become fictitious. The fictitious, yeah. and if you look at the GDP, as I said, it's uh, yeah. it's fictitious. And the most extraordinary thing is none of that is discussed in American media. Absolutely, there's not a single word about what you were being describing. And it's not even discussed in academia. Uh, our, our graduates at the University of uh, Missouri at Kansas City were all trained in modern monetary theory. And uh, in order to get uh, hired as professors, they had to be able to publish in the refereed journals. And the refereed journals are all controlled by the uh, essentially Chicago school censors. So you have a censorship of the kind of ideas that we're talking about. You can't get it into the economic journals, so you can't get it into the economics curriculum. So uh, where on earth are you going to get it? You, uh, if you didn't have the internet, uh, you wouldn't be discussing at all. Uh, most My books sell mainly in China, uh, more than in any other, uh, all the other countries put together. So I can discuss these there and there's just, uh, uh, I, I stopped publishing in orthodox journals uh, many years ago because it's talking to the deaf. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh. Let, can I ask you a question about Russia, Michael? Uh, there is a raging uh, debate in, in Russia for, for many years now between the, let's say, the Eurasianists and the Atlanticists. Uh, it involves, of course, economic policy under Putin, uh, industrial capitalism, Russian style. And uh, the, the Eurasianists basically say that the central problem with Russia is how the Russian central bank is basically affiliated with all the mechanisms that you know so well. That is an Atlanticist Trojan horse inside the Russian economy. How do you see it? Uh, Russia was brainwashed by the West when it, uh, the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. Uh, they, uh, they were convinced not that somehow uh, you had, first of all, the IMF announced in advance, there was a big meeting in Houston with the IMF and the World Bank and the IMF published all of its reports saying, first you need to wipe out all, you don't want inflation in Russia, so let's wipe out all of the Russian savings with 
hyperinflation, uh, which they did. Uh, they then said, well, now to cure the hyperinflation, uh, the Russian central bank needs a stable uh, a stable currency, and you need to back it with a currency. You need to back it with U.S. dollars. So uh, in from the early 1990s, as you know, labor was going unpaid. Russia central bank could have created the rubles to pay the domestic labor and to keep the factories in place. But uh, the uh, IMF advisors from Harvard uh, said, no, you have to borrow U.S. dollars. The, uh, I, met with, uh, an, uh, I met with people, uh, the Hermitage Fund and Renaissance Fund and others who had meetings. And uh, I met with the investors. And they were, the rate of, in, Russia was paying 100% interest per year to leading uh, American uh, uh, money, uh, financial institutions financial, for dollars yeah. that it didn't need. It could have created itself. Russia was so dispirited with, uh, with Stalinism, essentially, that it thought, uh, what's the opposite of Stalinism? It must be what they have in America. And they thought that America was going to tell it how America got rich. But America didn't want to tell Russia how it got rich. It wanted <laughs> to make money off Russia. They didn't get it. They they trusted the Americans. They thought some, they didn't understand. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they really didn't understand that uh, industrial capitalism that Marx described had metamorphosized into finance capitalism and was completely different. And that's because Russia didn't charge rent. It didn't charge interest. Uh, it, and uh, I gave a number of. Uh, I gave three speeches before the Duma, uh, urging it to. Uh, uh, impose uh, a land tax. Uh, some of the people uh, I noticed Ed Dodson was on here, he was uh, uh, there with us. And we were all trying to convince Russia, don't let this uh, be, uh, be privatized. If you let it be privatized, then you're going to have uh, such high rents and housing costs in Russia that you're not going to be able to uh, essentially compete with uh, foreign industrial growth. Well, the, uh, the politician who brought us there, uh, Vyacheslav Zelensky, uh, was sort of maneuvered out of election by the American advisors. The Americans put uh, billions of dollars in to, to essentially finance uh, propaganda, American propagandists to destroy Russia, mainly the, uh, uh, from the Harvard Institute of International Development. And uh, uh, essentially, they were uh, a bunch of gangsters. And uh, the uh, the Federal Reserve of uh, the the prosecutors in New York were about to prosecute them. Uh, not in New York, in Boston. New York was dominated by Wall Street, so uh, the uh, Attorney General of Boston was going to bring a big case uh, for Harvard against uh, the looting of Russia and the corruption of Russia. And I was asked to organize uh, to bring a number of Russian uh, politicians and uh, industrialists over to say how uh, this had destroyed uh, everything. Well, ha Harvard settled out of court, pleading no. <laughs> Uh, and uh, essentially uh, kept uh, uh, made uh, uh, the perpetrators the leading university uh, people uh, people up there. I'm associated with Harvard's anthropology department, not the economics. Yeah. Not uh, a, not economics. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so the, the case never, uh, I, we never had a chance to bring my witnesses uh, and have uh, our report on, uh, on what happened. But uh, uh, I published uh, the fact, uh, I published for the Russian Academy of Sciences uh, a long study of how all of this destruction of Russia was laid out in advance at the Houston meetings by the IMF and the Russians somehow thought 
when I say the Russians, America went to the uh, uh, leading bureaucrats who headed bureaucrats. government uh -huh. and said, look, we can make you rich. You, why don't you register the factories in your own name? And if you're registered in your own name, you know, then you'll own it. And then uh, you can cash out. You can uh, essentially uh, sell. But obviously, you can't sell to the Russians because the IMF have just wiped out all of their savings. You can only cash out by selling to the West. And so the Russian stock market became the leading stock market in the world from uh, 1994 with the uh, Norris Nickel and the seven bankers and the bank loans for shares deal through uh, 1997. And uh, uh, I'd worked for a firm, uh, Scudder Stevens, and uh, the uh, uh, head advisor, a former student of mine, didn't want to invest in Russia because she said, this is just a ripoff. It's going to crash. She was fired for not, they said, look, we know it's going to crash. That's the whole idea. It's going to crash. We can make a mint off it before the crash. And then we can make, when it crashes, we can make another mint by selling short. And then by buy selling short, yeah, yeah. And uh -huh. do it all over again. Well, the problem is that the system that was put in with the privatization that's occurred, uh, how do you uh, how do you have Russia's wealth used to develop its own industry and its own economy like China was doing? Well, China has rules for all of this, but Russia doesn't have a rule. It's really all centralized. It's uh, President Putin uh, that keeps it this way. Well. Uh, the, this is the great fear of the West. Uh, when you, uh, you had uh, Yevgeny Gorbachev uh, begin to plan uh, to do pretty much what is done today to, to restrain uh, private capital, uh, the IMF said, pulled off, it said, we're not going to make any loans to stabilize the Russian currency until you remove Mr. Gorbachev. The U.S. said, we won't deal with you until you remove him. So he was pushed out, and he was probably the smartest guy at the time there. So they, mm -hmm. they thought that Putin was going to be sort of a patsy, and he, uh, it, he's sort of almost single-handedly holding the uh, oligarchs in and saying, look, you can keep your money as long as you do exactly what you, uh, the government would do. Uh, you can gain, keep the gains as long as you're serving the public interest. But none of this is created into a legal system, a tax system, uh, and, a, and a system where the government actually does uh, get most of the benefit. Russia could have emerged in 1991 as the most competitive economy in Eurasia by giving all of the houses to its people. Every, instead of giving Norris Nickel and the uh, oil uh, companies to uh, uh, to Yukos and to Korakovsky, yeah. it could have given everybody their own house and their own apartment. Uh, the same thing in the Baltics. And instead, it, it didn't give the land uh, to the people. And Russia was, uh, Russians were paying 15% of their income for uh, housing in 1990. And that was low, you know, whereas, no, no, I'm sorry, it was 3%, 3% of their income. 3%. Three percent, and uh -huh. in the West it was thirty to forty percent. Uh, uh, Russia could have had, and that rent is the largest element in everybody, every homeowner's budget. Uh, so Russia could have had low-priced labor. It could have uh, financed uh, all of its capital investment for the government by taxing, uh, collecting the the rising rental value, and instead, uh, R Russian uh, uh, real estate was privatized on credit. And it was even worse in the Baltics. Uh, in Latvia, where I was research director for the Riga Graduate School of Law, the uh, Latvia borrowed uh, primarily from Swedish banks. Uh, 
and so you you had in order to buy a house uh, you had to borrow from the Swedish banks caught in and they said, well, we're not going to lend the Latvian currency because it can go down. You'll you'll b borrow and you have a choice: Swiss francs or German marks or or U.S. dollars. And so US they dollars. they all of this rent was paid in foreign currency. Became an outflow that uh, essentially drained the all the Baltic economies. Uh, Latvia's lost twenty percent of its population. Uh, Estonia and uh, Lithuania followed suit. And you, uh, of course, the worst hit was uh, Russia. Russia by neoliberalisms. And uh, as you know, President Putin said that neoliberalism cost Russia more of its population loss than World War II uh, did. And, uh, and, you know, that the way to destroy a country, you don't need an army to destroy a country anymore. All you have to do is teach it American economics. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Then it's, yeah. <laughs> then I remember, well, I, I arrived in Russia in uh, 91, in the winter of 91, coming from China. So this, this was, a, I, I transited from uh, the Chinese miracle. Um, in fact, a few days after Deng Xiaoping's famous uh, Southern tour, when he went to Guangzhou and Shenzhen, and that was the kick for the, for the 1990s a boom, in fact, now a few years before the handover. And then I took the Trans-Siberian and I arrived in Moscow a few days after the end, in fact, in fact a few weeks after the end of the Soviet Union. But the but the Amer I remember the Americans arrived almost at 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 the exact minute, wasn't it, Michael? I think they already were there in uh, in the spring of 1992, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, it was the Houston meeting in 1990. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh huh. But all, all before that, already in uh, 1988, 1989, there was a huge outflow of embezzlement money via uh, Latvia. Uh, uh, uh -huh. that, uh, the assistant dean of the university, uh, and uh, who ended up uh, creating Nordex. Uh, essentially, the money was all flowing out because Latvia was where uh, Ventspils was, where Russian oil was exported, and it was all fake invoicing. So the Russian kleptocrats basically made their money off false export invoicing, uh, ostensibly selling it for one price and having the rest paid abroad. And uh, uh, this was uh, all organized uh, through Latvia and uh, the man later uh, moved to Israel and finally uh, finally gave a billion dollars back to Russia so that uh, he wanted to live safely for the rest of his life uh, in Israel. Well, the crash of the ruble in 1998 was what? Roughly one year after the crash of the BAT and the whole Asian financial crisis. Nah? It was interlinked, of course, but uh, uh, let me see if I have a question for you. In fact, I'm just thinking out loud now. If uh, the economies of Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, the, uh, the case of North, North Korea, uh, South Korea, sorry, and Russia were more integrated at the time as they are trying to integrate now, do you think that the Asian financial crisis would have been preventable in 1997? Well, look at what happened at Malaysia with uh, Mohammed Mahathir. Yes. Uh, uh, Malaysia avoided it, so of course it was preventable. And they had uh, capital controls. Uh, capital con controls. Uh, that was what you did. All you would have needed was to do what Malaysia did. So, uh, if, uh, But you needed uh, an economic theory for that. And uh, essentially, if uh, the current 
mode of warfare is to conquer the brains of a country, to shape how people think and how they perceive the economy from working. And if you can twist their view into an unreality economics, where they think that you're there to help them, not to take money out of them, then you've, you've got them hooked. And that was what happened in Asia. Asia thought it was getting rich off the dollar inflows. And then yeah. uh, the IMF and the uh, all the cr uh, creditors pulled the plug, crashed the industry. And now that all of a sudden you had a crash, they bought up Korean industry and other South Asian industries, you know, it, it uh, give away prices. That's what you do. You lend the money, you pull the plug, you then you, uh, you, for, you let them go under and you pick up the pieces. That's what Blackstone did after the Obama uh, depression began, when Obama uh, saved the banks, not the... Uh, uh, the not as constituency, the mortgage owners. Uh, essentially, that that's Blackstone's op, modus operandi: pick up pick up distressed prices at a bankruptcy sale. But you need to lend money and then crash it in order to uh, make that work. Michael, I think we have only five minutes left, so this is this is probably. I, I would expect you to to go on a relatively long answer, and I'm really dying for it. It's, it's about debt, it's about debt trap, and it's about the New Silk Roads, the Belt and Road Initiative. Because mm -hmm. I think rounding up our discussion and coming back to the, the, the theme of debt and global debt, the number one criticism, <laughs> okay, apart from demonization of China that you hear from American media and a few American academics as well against Belt and Road, is that it's creating a debt trap for Southeast Asian nations, Central Asia, nations in Africa, etc. Uh, obviously, I expect you to debunk that, but uh, the framework is there is no other global development project as extensive and as complex as Belt and Road, which, as you know very well, was initially dreamed up by the Ministry of Commerce. Then they, they, they sold it more or less to Xi Jinping, who, who got the geopolitical stamp on it, announcing it uh, simultaneously, which was a, a, a stroke of genius in Central Asia, in Astana, and then in Southeast Asia, in Jakarta. So he was announcing the, the overland corridors through the heartland and the Maritime Silk Road at the same time. At the time, people didn't see <laughs> the reach and the depths of all that. And now, of course, during the Trump administration, finally the Trump administration woke up and, and saw what was in play, not only across Eurasia, but reaching, reaching Africa and even a part, selected parts of, uh, of Latin America as well. Uh, and obviously, the only the only sort of uh, <laughs> it's not it's not even uh, fact based criticism that I've seen about Belt and Road is uh, it's creating a death trap because uh, you know Laos is indebted, Sri Lanka is indebted, uh, Kyrgyzstan is indebted, etc. So so how how do you view Belt and Road within the large framework of the West and China? East Asia, Eurasia relations. And how would you debunk this myth created, especially in the US, that, there is, that this is a death trap? Uh, there, there are two points uh, to answer that. The first is how the Belt and Road began. And as you pointed out, uh, the Belt and Road began when China said, 
what is it that we need to grow and how, how do we grow within our neighboring countries so we don't have to depend upon the West and we don't have to depend on sea trade that can be shot down. How do we get uh, roads instead of seas uh, in a way that we can integrate uh, our economy with uh, the neighboring economies so that it can be a mutual growth. So this was done pretty much on industrial engineering. Uh, here's where you need uh, the roads and the railroads. Uh, and then how do we finance it? Well, uh, the, uh, the Financial Times article uh, last week said, didn't the Chinese know that uh, railroad development, they've, they've all gone broke. The, uh, the, uh, the Panama Canal went broke, you know, the first few times. There all the European railway investment in Latin America in the 19th century, that all went broke. Well, uh, uh, what they don't get is China's aim was not to make a profit off the railroads. It, the railroads were built to be part of the economy. Yeah, part of the economy. <laughs> overall, the aim wasn't to make profit. It was to help the real economy grow, not to make profits for the owners of the railroad stocks. Uh, but the uh, Western press can't imagine that you'd build a railroad without trying to make money off the railroad. Without trying to make money out of it. <laughs> Well, then you get to the, the debt issue and the debt, uh, no, you, countries only have a debt crisis if the debt is in a foreign currency. Uh, and the United States, uh, ever since 1945, the whole, the first way uh, that the United States gained power was to fight against its allies. Uh, the, the, great, uh, the great enemy of America was England and it made the British loan that prevented England from uh, blocking its currency with a blocked currency in the 1940s. And so uh, India and uh, other countries that had all these currency uh, uh, holdings that it, uh, in sterling were able to convert it all into dollars. Uh, the whole move of the US was to denominate uh, world debt in dollars so that number one, uh, the banks would uh, end up with the interest in financing the debt. And number two, the United States could uh, control by using the debt leverage, control uh, domestic politics. Well, uh, as you're, you're seeing right now in Argentina, for instance, uh, Argentina, uh, is broke because it owes foreign dollar uh, debt. Uh, when I was, uh, I started the first uh, third world bond fund in 1990 at Scudder Stevens and Brazil and, China and uh, Argentina were paying 45% interest per year on 45%. dollar debt. 45% mm -hmm. per year in dollar debt. We tried to sell them in America. No American would buy the funds that we had. We went to Europe. No European would buy this debt. And uh, so uh, we worked with uh, Merrill Lynch and Merrill Lynch was able to sell, uh, to say, well, make an offshore fund in the Dutch West Indies. And all of the uh, debt was sold to the uh, Brazilian ruling class in the central bank and the Argentina yeah. bankers, <laughs> bankers in the ruling class. And we thought, oh, that's wonderful. We know that they're going to pay the foreign debt, Yankee dollar debt, because the Yankee dollar debt is owed to themselves. They're the Yankees. They're the <laughs> you know, a client oligarchy. And as you know from Brazil, client oligarchy is, you know, they're cosmopolitan is the word exactly. that uh, Friedrich exactly. List used. So uh, the, the problem is that uh, on the Bilton Road, how do these other countries pay the debt to China? Well, uh, this, uh, the key there again is de-dollarization. Uh, and one way to solve it is since we're trying to get finance out of the picture, uh, we're doing something very much like uh, 
Japan did with Canada in the 1960s. It made loans to develop a Canadian copper mine, taking its payment not in dollar, Canadian dollars, uh, that would have pushed up the uh, yen exchange rate, but in copper. Uh, China says, you know, uh, you don't have to pay currency for this debt. We can uh, work. Uh, we didn't build the railroad to get uh, to make a profit in yen. We can print all the currency we want. We don't need to make a profit in yen. Uh, we we made the Belt and Road because it's part of our geopolitical attempt to create a uh, what we need to make uh, to be prosperous and have a prosperous region. So they're self-reinforcing mutual gain. Well, that's what the West doesn't get. Mutual gain, is, are we talking anthropology? Yeah, yeah, they don't understand the notion of mutual gain. <laughs> primitive tribes, what do you mean mutual? You know, this is capitalism. You know, so uh, uh, there's, uh, the, the West doesn't understand what the original aim of the Belt and Road was, and it wasn't to make a, a profitable railroad uh, to enable people to buy <laughs> railroad stops. And it wasn't to make toll roads, you know, to sell off to, uh, uh, to uh, whatever, uh, Goldman Sachs, you know, to yeah. make, uh, to charge tolls. Uh, uh, it was a different, we're dealing with two different economic systems. And it's very hard for one system to understand the other system because of the tunnel vision that you get uh, when you get a degree in economics. <laughs> <laughs> and the Belt and Road loans, they are a long-term and very low interest, and they are renegotiable. They are, yeah, renegoti yeah. They are renegotiating with the Pakistanis all the time, for instance. Yeah, China's intention is not to, dry, not to repeat an Asia crisis uh, yeah. of 1997. It doesn't gain anything by forcing a crisis because it's not trying to come in and buy property at a discount. You know, at a, at a, at a distress sale, uh, it, it has no desire to create a distress sale. So obviously, uh, it, the idea is the capacity to pay. Now, this is this whole argument occurred in the 1920s between Keynes and the uh, uh, the uh, uh, his opponents who wanted uh, to collect German reparations. And Keynes made it very clear: what's the capacity to pay? Uh, uh, it's the ability to export and uh, the ability to, you know, uh, to uh, obtain foreign currency. Well, China's not looking for foreign currency. Uh, it is looking for uh, uh, economic uh, return, but it look, the return is to the whole society. The return isn't from a railroad. The return is for the economy because it's looking at the economy as a system. And uh, the way that uh, neoliberalism worked it divides the economy into parts and it makes every part trying to make a gain. And if you do that, then you don't have any infrastructure that's lowering the cost for the other parts. You have every part fighting, fighting itself. You don't look in terms of a system. And China's looking at it. That's the, the great advantage of Marxism. You look at the system, not at just the parts. Exactly. And this is, and this is at the, uh heart of the Chinese concept of a community with a, with a shared future for mankind, which is uh, the approximate translation from Mandarin, of course. Now. So we compare community with a shared future for mankind, which is, let's say, the, the driving force between uh, the idea of Belt and Road expanded across Eurasia, Africa, and Latin America as well, with uh, our good old friend, greed is good from the 80s, which is still ruling America, apparently. You know? And the corollary is that non-greed is bad. 
Exactly. And no, 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 no greed, no greed is evil. <laughs> Michael, I see, I think we ran out of time. I, I don't, I don't know if Alana want, wants to step in to wrap it up. There may be somebody who has a question or so, or somebody has a question. That'll be fantastic. Okay. Alana here. There is Hi. one. Hi, this has been just great, guys. I mean, this is the only uh, web webinar I've been on where the attendance kept increasing <laughs> over time instead of decreasing. So we had spam in the chat, but there is uh, one question that was a good question from Ed Dodson. He wanted to know why there are these ghost cities in China. I mean, who's financing all this real estate that's developed, but nobody's living there? We've all been hearing about that. So what is happening with that? Okay, uh, Michael. one of the, uh, uh, China uh, had most of its population living in the countryside and it made uh, many, it's made many deals uh, with uh, Chinese uh, uh, landholders uh, who have land rights. Uh, and they said, if you will uh, give uh, up your land right uh, to the community, we will uh, give you three apartments uh, in uh, the city, the apartments that you can rent out. So China has been building apartments in cities and trading these basically uh, in exchange for uh, to, to, get, to support a what uh, used to be called a rural exodus. Uh, ch uh, China doesn't need as many farmers on the land as it now has. Uh, and the question is, how are you going to get them into cities? So uh, China has begun building uh, these cities in order to give uh, uh, many of these apartments are, are owned by people who uh, uh, got them in exchange for trading their land rights. Uh, so it's part of a, a deal that they've made as part of the rural reconstruction program. You think it was a good deal? <laughs> Vacant apartments everywhere? You don't know, but that's, yeah, that's why they But, uh, but you, you don't have ghost cities in Xinjiang, for instance. Xinjiang is uh, underpopulated. It's mostly deserts. Nah? And uh, it's extremely sensitive to relocate people to Xinjiang. So basically, they, they concentrated on uh, expanding Urumqi. When you arrive in Urumqi, it's like a, almost like arriving in, uh, in Guangzhou. It's enormous. It's a huge generic city in the middle of the desert. And it's also a high-tech Mecca, which is something that very few people in the West know. And is the direct link between the eastern, uh, the eastern seaboard uh, via Belt and Road to Central Asia. Uh, last year, I, I was on an amazing trip. I, I, I went to the three borders, uh, the Tajik Xinjiang border, Kyrgyz Xinjiang border, and the Kazakh Xinjiang border, which is three borders in one. It's, it's a fascinating area to explore. And especially to talk to the local populations, the, the, the Kyrgyz, the Kazakhs, and the Tajiks, uh, how, how do they see Belt and Road directly affecting their lives from, from now on? So uh, you, you don't see yet uh, something spectacular. For instance, in the Xinjiang-Kazakh border, there, there is one border for uh, the trucks, Lots of like like uh, in Europe, you know, uh, crossing from all points Central Asia to to China and bringing Chinese merchandise to Central Asia. There's the train uh, border, which is uh, very simple, two tracks, and the pedestrian border, which is very funny because you have people uh, arriving in buses from 
all parts of Central Asia. They stop on the Kazakh border. They take a shuttle. They clear customs for one day. They go to a series of shopping malls on the Chinese side of the border. They buy like crazy. The shop team will drop for, I don't know, 12 yeah. hours. And then they cross back the same day because the visa is for one day. They step on their buses and they go, they go back. So for the moment, it's, it's, it's a, that's sort of a, a pedestrian form of Belt and Road. But in the future, we're going to have high-speed rail. We're going to have, well, the, the pipelines are already there, as Michael, as Michael knows. You know. but, but it's fascinating to see on the spot how, uh, and you see the, the closer integration. You see, for instance, Uyghurs traveling back and forth. You know, Uyghurs go, that have families in uh, Kyrgyzstan, for instance. I met some Kyrgyz, uh, some Uyghurs in Kyrgyzstan who do the back and forth all the time. And they said, no, it's no problem. Uh, they see us as businessmen. Uh, there's no uh, interference. There are no concentration camps involved, you know. So, but it's, you, have to, you have to go to these places to, to see how it works on the ground. And with COVID, that's the problem for us, uh, journalists who travel, because not, for one year we cannot go anywhere. And, 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 and you know, Xinjiang was on my travel list this year, Afghanistan as well, Mongolia. These are all uh, parts of Belt and Road or future parts of Belt and Road, like in Afghanistan. Like um, the, the Chinese and the Russians as well, they want to bring Afghanistan uh, in a peace process organized by Asians themselves without the United States within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization because they want Afghanistan to be part of the uh, intersection of uh, Belt and Road and the Eurasian Economic Union. So, and this is something Michael knows very well. You don't see this kind of discussions in the American media, for instance. You know, in integration of Eurasia uh, on the ground, how it's, how it's actually happening, you know. That's called cognitive dissonance. Yeah. I'm sorry? Dissonance. To, to, to try to, <laughs> to understand it gets you cognitive dis dissonance. So, oh, yeah, of course. And, and, and obviously, you are uh, uh, Chinese agents, Russian agents, etc. I, I, I hear that all the time. Well, in our jobs, we hear that all the time, especially from, uh, unfortunately, our American friends. <laughs> Okay, I know you have other things to do. I, this has been fabulous. I want to thank you so much, both of you. Uh, it was so easy to get thank attendance you, for this webinar. There were 20 people in five minutes enrolled and in two days uh, we were at capacity. So I know there are many more people who would love to uh, hear you talk another time whenever you two are, are so willing. And I think you both got much out of your first conversation in person. Uh, everybody listening know that between these two wonderful gentlemen, they have written more than 10, 10 books and they have traveled all over the world. They are on the top of uh, geopolitical and geonomic uh, analysis and they are, are caring, loving people. So you can see that these are the people we need to be listening to and understanding all around the world. So thank you so much. There's now going to be uh, Ibrahima Drama at the Henry George School to say goodbye to you all and wrap this up. Thank you again. Thank, thank you, Alana. You thank you, Michael. It was a huge pleasure. Really, it was fantastic. Let, let, let's do, let's oh, do this again. That's really nice. I'm glad finally we're all on the same websites. We're all on this, exactly. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> So let's have a second version of this uh, two Wait, months like from two. now. <laughs>
Yes. Oh, and thank you very much for uh, participating. And I really hope you like the thank event. You. And uh, we also ask you to support us by making a tax deductible donation to the Henry George School. I believe I shared the link uh, on the chat. Thank you and uh, see you soon. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Elena. Bye. <laughs> Thank Bye. you. Bye. Take <laughs> Bye. care. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Yes. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.